0: All right, a couple of things before we get started, just by way of reminder, our men's prayer breakfast is this Saturday morning, it will be at 7.30, followed by our deacon's meeting, uh, which will take place about 9 o'clock, and then um, next week, or next Sunday, the next day, we have our annual congregational meeting Um immediately following the morning worship service. So we'll give people time to get grab kids and everything, but it should not be a very long, but it will be an informative meeting. Uh, third, we have the uh, support for Israel and the Jewish Community Conference next week. I'll be speaking on Jewish evangelism on Tuesday night, um, uh, Olivier Melnick on uh, anti-Semitism on Wednesday night, which will be extremely informative and eye-opening for everybody. Thursday night, it will be Ambassador Yoram uh, Edinger. And then Friday, we have, uh, I think, over 40 people so far signed up to go to uh, Beth Shen on Friday night. It's just really surprised. Uh, Rabbi Strauss is just overwhelmed. He did, never expected that. So there'll be plenty of room for us. So that is, um, that's all going, going very good. The other thing that I wanted to inform everybody of is that I woke up this morning to a couple of pictures from Zambia. Uh, Charles uh, Musanda, who is a pastor there who's been listening online for um, about 15 years, more than that, almost 18 years, and he um, is the one who translated the Promises book into Bimba, which is a one of the major tribal languages in uh, Zambia. and now he has had the opportunity to expand his ministry and travel around uh, Zambia, and he's meeting with pastors and so here's a group of forty pastors. He writes, uh, "Good morning, keep us in your prayers." Started out first teaching program with 40 pastors. I put the booklet teachings into a PowerPoint, which is being used when teaching. Each pastor will then receive 20 copies of the booklet to take with them to their church. Thereafter, uh, we'll move to another location. The response is amazing. And see, he's going to these rural villages where they hardly even have scripture, Okay, so this is just having a phenomenal response. On the same hand, we got a text this morning. Here's a picture of a Ukrainian soldier loading up 3,500 copies of the promised book into the back of his vehicle to take to frontline troops. And Igor wrote, Let's pray that God will use those books to bring salvation for our soldiers. Unfortunately, a really bad situation on the front line. Lots of soldiers died or injured. Uh, over the last year, he knows that he has put this booklet into the hands of many soldiers who are now with the Lord. So this is a, an incredible ministry. And then it's also been translated into Swahili by Pastor Maurice in, um, in somewhere in Kenya. And pray for him because uh, the, the, everything got printed a week ago, but he couldn't pick it up because his mother had had a stroke. And so he had to go to wherever his parents live, but it's not close to where he lives. It's in another town somewhere. And so he had to go there and spend a week. And there's just his, he's got six siblings and they do not uh, participate in taking care of the parents. He's the oldest. So be in prayer for those things. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I'll open in prayer. Our Father, we just rejoice that your word is going forth and that the gospel is being made clear in all of these different languages, 14 different languages and counting. And Father, we're just amazed at how this is being used. And we know that your word will not return void. It will accomplish that which you have intended. And so we just rejoice at the privilege of being able to participate in this and being able to see how you are working in such a tremendous way. Father, we do pray for the Smolyar family as they face difficult decisions with many changes taking place in Ukraine and the desire to get out. And we pray that uh, we can find a way to get them out and to provide for them to come to the U.S. And that is a tremendous need. And so, Father, as we explore these things, we need wisdom and knowledge, and um, we know that you will make our, pl- our paths straight as we trust in you. Now, Father, as we continue our study in this interlocked program, we're thankful for uh, Amos and Jen who have done all of this magnificent work and put this together, and for the way it is enriching many people uh, beyond anything we can, we can imagine right now giving them a tremendous ministry worldwide so thankful for that and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was texting with Amos last night. They they are in Singapore and they have a new group that they have started and there are there's at least one unbeliever in the group. There is a man of mis, mixed et, 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 ethnicity and he's Part of it's Jewish, part of it's two or three other things and uh, and some of the people coming from strange religious backgrounds and so it's one of the, he said it 's one of the most challenging groups they've had to deal with and it's they there's very little solid biblical information that people have, so it 's quite a challenge, so be in prayer for them. So we are finishing up lesson 12, which was on the Passover, and then I hope having enough time to move into at least the introductory part of lesson 13. I'm trying to keep up, but if we run out of time, I may just not start 13 until next week, so we'll see. So at the end of 12, so we're calling this 12C, there are two... Uh, boxed areas. And they have these boxed areas in the curriculum raising certain questions that people often raise about what Scripture teaches and offering uh, biblical, solid biblical answers. And so the first box asks the question, where do the dead go? Where do people go when they die? What happens? And it focuses on two aspects before the cross and since the cross. And then the second question is, where do young children go when they die? And that's always an important question. And um, there is a really good book on this topic by Dr. Robert Leitner, who for many years was a professor at Dallas Seminary. I was a TA for Bob back years ago. And he's just a really solid biblical scholar, and he wrote just a small booklet called Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And so if you want to probe into that topic a little more, if you know somebody who has uh, had an infant or young child die, uh, that's a, I recommend that, that particular book. So just to, by way of review, what we've seen is that the book of Exodus we go from Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, and we see the beginnings of creation, we see the beginnings of man, with the beginnings of sin, the beginnings of salvation, uh, the beginnings of divine judgment on uh, mankind in the um, in, in the Noahic flood, and then we see the beginnings of the divine institutions, and we see the beginnings of God's call out for Abraham and that God has changed his plan to from working with the human race as a whole to working through one man and his descendants and the promises that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. So we look at our Old Testament events, and we are on the uh, sixth one, Exodus, which takes place uh, at during the first half of the book of Exodus. Genesis has 50 chapters. Exodus has 40 chapters. The first 19 chapters of Genesis deal with their uh, deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and then the rest of the book deals with the giving of the Mosaic Law to the God's people, uh, the Jewish people. So that, I'm not going to take the time uh, to go through the timeline tonight. There are five lessons that we learned from the flood, and these same five lessons are paralleled every time there's, there's judgment and there, They are repeated in the uh, in the Exodus event. The first is grace before judgment. That God does not just announce judgment and go wham bam and kill kill everybody, but there is a time lapse. Sometimes there's a long time lapse. Uh, Before the flood, there was a, a lot of people point out. Well, it was about 120 years but uh it goes back if you read back a little further it started the this expectation of a judgment started with with um Enoch who was um uh was was a prophet the new testament tells us and so there's this long warning of coming judgment and that's the same for, at the same thing we see with the um um with the plagues of Egypt through that whole time period. And I don't think these plagues happened in a short time. I think that they it may have taken two or three years to go through the cycle of the ten plagues. They were not just one immediately following another. Uh, there was time. And so people had time to make a decision. We know that a lot of people decided to turn their back on their paganism, their polytheism, and on the Egyptian um, demonic religions because there was a mixed multitude that left Egypt. And that means that there were a, many Egyptians and probably other slaves who left with the Jews as they left. So there's grace before judgment. Then second, there's an issue of whom to sa- save, whom to judge. What's the deciding point? And in every case, it's always faith in God's word, faith in God's promise. Uh, with the um, uh, with the ark, those who were saved were the ones who followed God's instructions and got on the ark. There was only one way to be saved, and then everyone else would be judged. Third, there was only one way of salvation. There's always only one way of salvation, and that's what God uh, reveals uh, fourth man and nature are impacted in divine judgment and divine judgment comes as a result of human sin and so the greatest ecological disasters in human history took place as a result of human sin it took place first at the garden of eden second in the uh, noachic worldwide flood and another was during the time of the of, of the exodus the the ten plagues Uh, And fifth, how to be saved. It is always by faith, by faith alone in God's promise. So these same five lessons are repeated from the flood and repeated in the Passover. Last time we went through those five lessons. We talked about then at the end, blood atonement. And then our response is always to the word of God. That's the most important thing. We need to know that God has spoken to us and that he has revealed his plan and his purposes. He has made it very clear that we have our lifetime, that is our time of grace, before judgment. And the writer of Hebrews said, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And the only way to avoid the judgment is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, So then we did not finish what we will begin with tonight. Where do people go when they die? That's the question. And how did that play itself out in the Old Testament and before the cross? And how is it played out uh, in the New Testament? So just by way of a little more review, Jesus saves by way of blood atonement. We saw that represented in the blood that was uh, uh, splattered, onto the doorposts of the homes, and uh, it represents life. And so what is pictured there, uh, I'll get into this more as we go forward, but there's been uh, uh, some historical confusion. You will read in the material that the uh, quarks present uh, the idea of atonement as covering. And there's basically... uh, two words that are spelled alike and pronounced the same. One is, and the word is kafar, K-P, it's a soft P, P-H-R. And it's used to describe the, the, uh, what Noah did in putting some sort of pitch uh, onto the ark to make it waterproof. And then the word is also used in relation to atonement. And the English word, we've gone through this many times, the English word atonement is a made-up word. It's at one meant. Just break it down into the three syllables. And they just made it up to try to capture what this word meant. And often it was understood as a covering. But it is a different word. We have words like that in English that um, homonyms and homophones... And, uh, uh, sometimes we have homographs. And a homograph is a word, graph, meaning writing. They are written the same, but they're actually pronounced differently, and they, are, they have different meanings. And so that's what we have here. You look in, uh, more contemporary 20th century Hebrew lexicons, they will have, uh, kafar one, and then they'll have a second entry, kafar two. And in Kefar too, if you examine the data, that it often has the idea, you'll read the theological term expiation, which has to do with a cleansing or purification. And often, but not always, often it is translated into the Greek at, with the word katharizo, which is the Greek word for cleansing or purification. You know, when you cauterize a wound... That English word cauterize comes from the Greek word katharizo. And so the blood isn't a covering for sin. The blood is a picture of that which is necessary to purify us uh, from our sin. So this next slide, we have Romans 3, 6.23, rather, that the wages of sin is death, death is the consequence of human sin, and that without the shedding of blood, which is a metaphor for death, because the penalty for sin was death. And so uh, that uh, we must die, and that would be an eternal separation from God, unless a payment is made for us. And that the sacrifices in the Old Testament were temporary. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. So in this picture, we have what we learned in the Passover uh The firstborn was under a death sentence, just like every human being is born under a death sentence. But the firstborn will not die if the uh, proper sacrifice, a lamb without spot or blemish, which pictures the Messiah who would be without sin. And the lamb would be sacrificed, and the blood would be applied to the doorpost. And that is a picture of what happens at our salvation. Christ dies in our place, and through his death we have forgiveness. Forgiveness is a great message when we are witnessing to people. We have forgiveness for sin. We have cleansing for sin. God willingly, he wants to forgive us, but we have to do it his, his way. So either man dies for his own sin eternally or as a result of his own sin, or a substitute dies. Man is born spiritually dead. As John 3.18 says, he who has not believed is condemned already. We We are born condemned under a life sentence in the lake of fire. So the issue is our response to the word of God. We either harden our heart like Pharaoh did and many others do, or we... A turn to the Lord. There's no neutral ground, and it is all comes from God's word. Uh, we'll just I'll just cite Isaiah 55:11. God promises this: So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth; it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So in this lesson, we're going to look at the question, where do people go when they die? Before the cross. So we'll look at a description of Sheol, which is the Hebrew word, and Hades, the Greek translation of that word, and what is said about them in the Bible. Second, we will add to that a description of a place referred to in the scripture as the abyss or the pit, and a second term is Tartarus, which was a special deep area in Sheol or Hades. And then second, we'll address the question, what happens at, to the dead at the time of the cross when Jesus died? And then third, where do the dead go today? Where do believers go when they die? What happens? And where? what about unbelievers? And then we'll come to the second question, which is where do babies or young children or those who are mentally incapacitated uh, where do they go when they die? They're incapable of understanding the gospel, of reaching God consciousness and trusting in, in the Lord. Uh, and we'll look at this under the points: mankind is sinful. We'll look at the first piece of biblical data in Second Samuel 12:23, a second piece of biblical data, data in Romans 1:20, and then we'll put the information together the bottom line is we have, in, the, in the end we have to trust god shall not the judge of all the earth do right that was a question that abraham asked god is omniscient he knows all the facts god is uh, perfect in his righteousness perfect in his justice and he will always do the right thing so first of all defining term sheol is the old testament hebrew word for the place of the dead Sometimes it just simply referring to the grave in some places in the New, in the Old Testament, and um, other places it pl- refers to the realm or the place where the dead go, and um, sometimes it just refers to the depths. This ch- kind of general sense. That's how it's translated, and there are several verses there that reference this: Genesis 37:35 and 44:29. 37 35 and 44 29, Psalm 917, Psalm 1610, Psalm 883, 89, 48, 139, 8, Proverbs 9, 18, Isaiah 5, 15, and 149, and Habakkuk 2:5. Hades is the New Testament Greek word for the place of the dead. Both Sheol and Hades refer to the same place. It's where the dead go after death in the Old Testament. Believer and unbeliever both went to Sheol. Sheol is not equivalent to hell. Actually, hell is a bad word to use. Hell comes out of Norse mythology. Okay, And we get into some real confusion. A lot of times it's used to reference Gehenna. And I've done lengthy studies on Gehenna. Gehenna was a place where the Jews at the time of the, or prior to the Babylonian defeat and destruction, uh, would sacrifice, immolate, burn alive their infants in the arms of Molech in the valley of Gehenna. So it was a place of uh, horrible disobedience to God, and it was where uh, many Jews were killed when the uh, Babylonians came in. And that is where God punished them, was where they had committed those sins. And uh, that is a picture not of eternal condemnation, but it's a picture of temporal judgment. But that goes beyond our study. Now what we learn is a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago and that is a passage in Luke 16:19 and following, uh, identified as the uh, story about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, there's debate over this, just to put in something a little extra. There are a lot of people today who will say this is a parable. And I would say, no, it's not. A parable... If you read the parables of Scripture, they do not identify historically real places, and they do not identify people by name. And it's not just looking at what we have in this story, where you have Lazarus named, but these locations of Sheol and the description of Sheol with torments and and the people that are there are evidenced in other passages of Scripture. So I believe that it is talking about a real place, a real location, which is where uh, people went uh, when they died. So we're told about this rich man, he's left unnamed, and he dressed well, clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day, but there was a beggar, homeless guy, sitting outside his front gate, full of sores, who was begging. And he wanted to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sword. It's not a pleasant picture. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I think this is a fantastic statement uh, because God sends his angels for us at the point of death. And he's taken to a place called Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades. So we know that the rich man goes to Hades. And it is a place of torments. Well, that tells me that there is some sort of interim body, temporary interim body that not only unbelievers have, but that believers have. And it is a, a body that is indestructible. And his is a body that can feel pain. And so it is described as a place of torments in Hades. Now he lifts up his eyes, and he looks, and he sees in the distance Father Abraham. And he sees Lazarus with him. So Lazarus is in a different location. He's not in torments. He is with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, who was justified by faith alone. So we see that there are three basic areas as we read through the story. There's the area of Abraham's bosom, which is where Abraham and Lazarus are located. There is the, on the far right, there is the place of torment. This is where the rich man is in torments. And in between, there is a, the King James called it a great gulf fix. There is an impassable chasm between them. Luke sixteen twenty four. the rich man cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger, notice, There's got to be some sort of immaterial body because he has a finger and it has a fingertip. And he can dip it into the water in order to cool my tongue. So the rich man has a tongue. He has a body of some sort to feel the torments and it's obviously fiery because he says, "I am tormented in this flame." So we can we can deduce from this that there is some sort of interim body for both um, the Old Testament saint and for the Old Testament unbeliever. But Abraham says, "Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise at Lazarus, evil things." But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is this great gulf fixed, this great chasm, so that those who want to pass from here to there cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. I don't think too many people would want to go in the one-way direction. Verse 27 says, Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Okay. Well, if he can't come to me, let him be raised from the dead so that he can go warn my brothers. And he says, I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Now, the next verse is one of the most important verses on this whole question of what about the lost? What about those who never uh, never heard? What about the heathen? All of those kinds of questions that have always been asked. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. God has given us sufficient witness and sufficient information for salvation. They're right there. It's available. That's what Abraham is saying. And if they don't listen to them, it doesn't matter what miracles happen. They won't believe, even if a man comes back from the dead. And so in verse um, 16, the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll change their mind. But he, that is, Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. That is really a profound statement. It says a lot about human, what the human makeup is in terms of the orientation of of our volition that when people have turned against whatever revelation god has given they will then harden their heart like pharaoh did and no matter what any happens they will not change their mind they will not if they don't if they have moses and the prophets they've had a sufficient revelation so what we also learn about this is that there's another to uh, Sheol called Tartarus, or the abyss, or the bottomless pit. So this is a really interesting aspect of Isaiah 14. Often we go to Isaiah 14 just a little bit further down to talk about the fall of, of Satan or Lucifer. But this is prior to that. And it's in a section from chapter 13, 14, and 15 dealing with the prophecy by Isaiah of the fall of Babylon, of God's uh, future judgment on Babylon. Because Isaiah lived around 700 to 740 BC, and that's a good um, 150 years before Babylon rises to power And before Nebuchadnezzar will come to the throne and Nebuchadnezzar invades and defeats the the, uh, uh, the kingdom of Judah three times, and it's the third time's the charm, and he destroys Jerusalem and the the temple. That's 150 years away. So now he is telling them what's going to happen to the king of Babylon, but that's not defined as a specific king. So it could have been any of them. And it may possibly be a reference to the future Antichrist because there's a resurrection of Babylon during the tribulation period. But that's another topic. So what Isaiah says is, It shall come to pass, in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow. Now, I think that makes it... uh, eschatological because this idea of rest from their sorrow did not happen historically. That comes in the millennial kingdom when the, when the king comes to rescue Israel from their, uh, uh, from their oppressors, rescue them at the end of the tribulation. So I think that this is talking about something that happens at the end of the tribulation. When God, when the Lord will give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. That you will take up this proverb. Actually, it's more like a taunt, but the the Hebrew word can cover both. It's a proverb, it's an accurate translation. You will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. So you're going to taunt him. You're going to be singing songs about where he is. And and you're going to say how the oppressor has ceased and the golden city ceased. That would be Babylon. And there's that future resurrection of the city of Babylon during the tribulation period. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet and they break forth into singing. And then we read, indeed, Isaiah says, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon. Now, what is he saying there? Are the trees actually going to sing? No. What he is, Lebanon was known for its rich, dense cypress and cedar forests that provided the lumber for the building of the, uh, of the um, uh, temple and that 's what they were known for and and the cedars of Lebanon is almost proverbial, and so the cypress trees and the cedars of Lebanon represent the nation of Lebanon, which is just to the northwest of Israel and When the Babylonians came down, they just decimated uh, lebanon and and that area of Syri- and the area of Syria so He's, when he says this, it's just a figurative way of talking about those from Lebanon rejoice over you, saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come against us. In other words, since the, the king of Babylon is destroyed, there's no more armies to destroy us, to annihilate us. And then they say in verse nine, hell in the Hebrew, that's bad translations in the, in the King James. It's sheol in the Hebrew. Sheol, from beneath, is excited about you, to meet you at your coming. So the people in Sheol are excited. Look who's coming, this great leader, this evil leader. Even he has fallen. And, they, and uh, so in Sheol, they say, um, or, or Isaiah says about those in Sheol, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. The, the, the presidents and the prime ministers and the generals and the dictators and the uh, captains of industry and the tech giants, all of whom have been meeting over there in Switzerland at Davos recently. Uh, and practicing their witchcraft they had they had a witch come out on the stage if you didn't watch it you got to learn some things about what these what these people in business are doing they had a woman come out and cast spells and all of this occult stuff uh, so all the chief ones of the earth it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations they all speak and say to you so all of these. Dead. So this tells us, number one, they've got some sort of body. They can talk. They're going to be taunting this king of Babylon. They shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. Notice what they say next. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. Well, what that tells us, they're talking there about what's happened to his body. It's in the grave and it's decomposing and it's being covered with worms and maggots and God knows what else. But his soul is in Sheol and it's cognizant and they can ridicule him and make fun of him because he's just like the rest of them, just because he had all this pomp And power, when he was uh, alive, he has nothing now. He's like everybody else. So that's a very interesting perspective there. And it fits the same scenario as what is described in Luke chapter 16. Then we're going, now we're going to go forward. We're going to go from back in the Old Testament to Revelation chapter nine. Revelation chapter nine describes the trumpet judgments. There's three series of judgments that take place. Actually, there's four. Most people ignore the third one because there's these thunderclaps that John hears in Revelation 10, and God says, don't write it down and don't tell anybody what it, what they said. So there's just kind of this, this emptiness there. Uh, but you have the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments in the first half, and then you have the thunder judgments and the bold judgments at the end. So this is the trumpet judgments the fifth angel's the fifth trumpet judgment and I saw a star fall fallen from heaven to the earth and to him to the, and the star would be an angel to him was given the key to the bottomless pit and the word there in the Greek is abyssos abyss the abyss and he opened the bottomless pit now that's a different word it's Literally in the Greek, it's the pit of the abyss. He opened the pit of the abyss and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Talk about air pollution. See, God's judgments are much worse than anything industry can do. Then in 9-11 it says, and and they had as king over them the angel or the messenger of the pit of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek it has the name Apollyon, which means destroyer. So you have this reference to this abyss. In Revelation eleven seven, 7 uh, when they finished their testimony... That's the talking about the two witnesses that are going to be executed by the Antichrist halfway through the tribulation period. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, what's interesting is when you get into Luke 8, Jesus is comes on the this uh, demon possessed man and when the demon possessed man comes up to jesus the demons the demons that indwell him fall cause him to fall down in a worshipful stance bowing down before jesus and they cry out what have i to do with you jesus son of the most high god i beg you do not torment me so they can be... What are they talking about? Notice that word torment. And then the next verse says, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard. He was, they would bind him with chains and, and, uh, and shackles, and he would break them. Uh, the demon gave him supernatural strength. And then Jesus addressed him and said, what's your name? And he said, my name is Legion, which is uh, would indicate two or three thousand demons were indwelling this one man. And then they begged Jesus that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Isn't that interesting? The deepest part of Sheol. And Second Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, and that would refer to the sons of God who took on human flesh and intermarried with human women in Genesis 6. But cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness. So they're these uh, sinful angels who left their first estate, as, as Jude describes it, and they are now in this place of Tartarus, uh, reserved for judgment. So this is what happened before Christ. Is you have these three areas. So what happened at the time of the cross? Well, in Luke twenty three forty three, Luke tells us that one of the on each side of Jesus there was a man being crucified. There were thieves, and one of them had turned to Jesus and said, "Lord, remember me today in your kingdom." which is, you know, he's not praying the sinner's prayer, and he's still saved. How does that happen? He didn't invite Jesus into his heart. He didn't commit his life to Jesus. He just said to Jesus, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And what he's saying, that's an expression. of he understands who Jesus is, he called him Lord. And and recognizes that he knows who Jesus is, and he knows that, and he's trusting in Him to remember him. So so he's expressing his faith in Christ that way. And Jesus said to him, "Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise." So paradise was another term for um, for Abraham's bosom, where the Old Testament saints went. Now, we're told in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. By whom also he went and announced judgment to the spirits in prison. So they would be those who were in in Tartarus. In Acts 7.55 we read, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. This is Stephen as he is being uh, executed, murdered by the uh, self-righteous Pharisees because they believed he had blasphemed. And so um, he is able to look into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So these passages suggests that that believers, since the cross, go straight to heaven. They are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. So what we learn from this and from also in Second um, Corinthians 10, I believe, I'll look that up, is that, you know, when Paul had his vision, he went went to heaven and had, had this vision, that's in um, chapter 11, I think, 12, 12, um, that he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. So he's going there, and then um, that is where paradise is. Paradise was transferred from earth, I mean, from wherever it was in the Old Testament to heaven after the cross. And then in Second Corinthians 5, uh, we read uh, just a, tr- a tremendous pa- passage here. It says that we... Uh, we are in verse eight, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present or face to face with the Lord. So at the instant of our physical death, we are absent from the body and we are face to face with the Lord. So that when believers die, we go to heaven directly. We are not in our resurrection body yet. We do not get our resurrection body until the rapture. But we have some sort of interim body, just as I pointed out in the things I saw in Isaiah 14 and in Luke 16. There's some sort of interim body. And then First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that when the Lord descends, those who are dead in Christ, they will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So their soul and some immaterial bodies are already in the presence with the Lord. And they will have a resurrection body patterned after the Lord's resurrection body. Now, I always get a little facetious here because what happened was when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just get a new body. If he had just gotten a new body, there would have been a body in the tomb. So God took what was part what was his uh, mortal body and transformed it into an immortal body, so the tomb is empty. Does that bring any questions to anybody's mind? I always wonder what happens if you 've got you know somebody who's had an eye transplant and had a liver transplant and a lung transplant and a heart transplant oh what if they all came from believers and rapture comes is you can think about it maybe it'll help you go to sleep tonight get a little chuckle so when we die we go to heaven and then at the rapture we get our resurrection body so when unbelievers die now they go to a place of torment uh, to await the great white throne judgment This we see in Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. John sees this vision. Then I saw, and this is at the end of the millennium, after the Gog and Magog revolution against God, when God rains down fire and brimstone and destroys all of the unbelievers. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. They can't hide. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open. Notice plural. There's record keepers in heaven, recording everyone's works. Now that's, that, that doesn't separate, distinguish between good works and bad works. It just says works, all of them, all, every, everything you've done. If you're an unbeliever, everything you've done, the good things, the nice things, the sweet things, the nasty things, the sinful things, everything's right there. It's all been recorded. And that's what's in those books. And another book is open, and that's the book of life. And if you've trusted in Christ, your name's in the book of book of life. And the dead are judged according to their works. Now, there's different ways people have explained this, and they've tried to break it down into good works and bad works. It just works. It's gonna pile up everything the unbeliever did, and it's gotta be, it's gotta equal perfect righteousness. So, the standards here, and the best person, most moral person on all of history is going to have his works piled up, and they're only going to be about this high. It doesn't measure up. See, they're trying to earn their way to heaven, and at the great white throne, they're going to say, see, I would have given you perfect righteousness, but you tried to do it on your own. See how far you fall short? You're out of here. That's what we picture here. Here's the great white throne judgment. And all the people are going to, the unbelievers are going to appear. Only unbelievers appear at the great white throne judgment. Church age believers have already been raptured and given their resurrection bodies and will reign during the millennial kingdom. Old Testament saints are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. And tribulation saints are resurrected and given their resurrection bodies at the end of the tribulation. And I don't think any believers, it doesn't mention what happens to believers who, who die during the millennium, because that, according to the Old Testament, is an extremely rare thing, probably doesn't happen. So you have the book of life on the one hand, and your name's not there. So let's look at the book of, of works. Well, you don't have enough there, so what happens? Verse 13 says that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So everyone who was in death and Hades, that's all unbelievers, are the ones who are now cast into the lake of fire. So you don't go to the lake of fire until after the great white throne judgment. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So Sheol and Hades gives up their dead. And then after the evaluation, they go to the lake of fire. The book of life. How do you get your name there? John 3.15, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He who believes in the son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 6.40, Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day, John 10, 28 and 29, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them uh, out of my Father's hand. So that takes us up. Actually, I've covered uh, all of the information in the first question, and for some crazy reason in changing things over, I didn't put the other... Uh, slides in here, but you have your notes. So let's talk about the next question. Where do babies, young children, or those with mental challenges go? Well, the first thing that we have to point out is that man is sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all born sinners and under condemnation because John 3.18 says, he who has not believed has been condemned already. So that would include every newborn baby. That would include Um, every person who has some sort of mental defect where they are unable to understand or comprehend the gospel. So the Bible states very clearly that all men, all women, all infants are all sinful. Paul talks about that in Romans 3, 9 and 10. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written there is none righteous no not one there's not one So we have this situation that comes up with King David and it is mentioned in 2 Samuel It's mentioned in um, in 2 Samuel and David mentions it again in Psalm 51 he talks about infants and iniquity. In Psalm 51, five. he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, some people have some odd views on that, and what that means is that he was born a sinner. The, in the notes, it has, uses the New Living Translation, which says, for I was born a sinner. That's an interpretation. That's not what the text says, but it's an accurate interpretation. From the moment my mother conceived me, that we are corrupt. And then in Psalm 139:13, David prayed, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. So that's the first part of biblical data that we have, that we're born sinners, that, that from conception we are a fallen, corrupt creature. But when David was mourning the loss of the baby that... Uh, Bathsheba gave birth to as a result of their adulterous affair. David says in 2 Samuel 12, 23, when he is told, he says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? He had been fasting for a week and praying that God would give him, give the life to the infant. And he says, can I bring him back again? And the answer would be no. I shall go to him See where would where would David go when he dies? He would go to, um, he would go to Abraham's bosom. He would go to paradise. He said, "I will go to him, but he shall not return to me." Now, some people you may hear will say, "All well, David doesn't know that much." I think David knew a whole lot more than he was allowed to record, and we have evidence where where David Daniel was told not to record things that God revealed to him. John in Revelation was told things that he was not allowed to, to write down. I think a lot of the Old Testament prophets and David knew a whole lot more than than um, what they were allowed to write down. And David is not just making a generic statement, well, I'll go to the grave and rot, and I'll be with him. He's not saying that. He has a confidence here. It gives him hope. I will go to him, but but he can't come back to me. So David is trusting God that that the infant will be saved and so we also learn that uh people are as as sinners that they have suppressed the truth of god so people have no excuse uh they uh those who have had reached a state of volitional responsibility and so the bottom line is that young children and people with uh, mental challenges have an excuse because they've never reached that point of accountability. Now, we use this phrase, the age of accountability, and people think, well, when is that? Well, it's not a chronological point. It's different for everybody. If you are like like me or like... I always go back. There was a uh, some friends of mine. They had a little girl named Ginger... And her mother taught two or three good news clubs every week. And she took Ginger with her. And every day at the end of teaching a class, her mother would um, uh, ask the kids, does anybody want to go to heaven when they die? Do they want to believe in Jesus? And the kids would raise their hand, and kids were saved. She got back in the car, little two-year-old Ginger, she's probably closer to three than two, her uh, and said, Mommy, how come you never ask me if I want to believe in Jesus? Now, she reaches God consciousness really early because she's exposed to it all the time. But if you're growing up in, in, in the, in the rainforests of uh, the Congo or Kenya or Brazil, you may not hear anything about God or even think about anything related to God until you're in your adolescent years or even older. So it's going to differ depending on, on your, your environment. So whoever dies before they reach that point where they go, there's got to be a creator. Nah, forget it. Uh, that's the age of accountability, when you can be withheld without excuse. And so these scriptures uh, clearly teach teach. This concept of the age of accountability, and it's related in Romans one to God consciousness that that God says that there in, in Romans uh, 118 and to 20 that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through his creation, and so that's enough to hold them accountable. they'll be without excuse. but we have to trust in God ultimately. God is righteous and God is just. Psalm 145:17 says the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. So we know that God is absolutely righteous. He will always do the right thing. Right now we can, may not understand why God does certain things because we have limited knowledge and our knowledge is shaped often by our uh, some some sin-shaped values. But when we are absent our sin nature and we see things as they truly are and God as he truly is, we will know that everything God did, there's no question about it, he did the right thing and he was absolutely fair and just. So we can say with Abraham in Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And so uh, we understand that God wants to save people. It's very clear. He, he, he wants to save people. He He waits a long time before he judges people, and he gives people all the opportunity he can, and he has made salvation simple. You just have to believe in Christ. So he wants to save people. He is not inclined to judge, but he is forced to by people's uh, by people's rejection and their disobedience. So that takes us through the end of uh, Lesson 12, and next time we'll come back and wait and start with Lesson 13 with um, talking about Mount Sinai and the law. All right? Father, thank you for this time we've had to look at these two questions that people ask all the time and kids will ask. And so we need to be prepared to answer these questions as kids get older. They ask questions about, well, what about people who never heard the gospel? How would God hold them accountable? Uh, What about uh, the babies who die? And you have the answers. They're all available in the Scripture. So, Father, we trust in you, and we know that you will do the right thing. Father, we thank you as we see this overview of the Old Testament. We see the patterns, and we see how it leads directly to Jesus and to the cross and a clear statement of salvation. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.